Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. My name is Josh Chambers, a medical student at the University of East Anglia. And this podcast sort of selfishly gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of backgrounds, drilling down to why they chose the speciality they're in and what it's really like to do the job. In this episode, we're concentrating on tech in the NHS with a really interesting guest that will kind of make you want to design and innovate things. I hope you enjoy. guest this week on the podcast is Professor Tony Young. Tony Young is a National Clinical Director for Innovation NHS England but is fundamentally a consultant urological surgeon at South End Hospital. He's also the Chair and Director of Medical Innovation at Anglo Ruskin School of Medicine and he joins us today to talk about innovation and the future of the NHS. Professor Tony Young, thank you for joining us on the Geeky Medics podcast. What soon will become clear is you've You've had and have an incredibly varied career. What's a typical week like for you? Um, So I don't think there is such a thing as a typical week. Um, It's all uh, so varied. Um, So I'm still a consultant surgeon in the NHS. So at the moment, um, every other week, I do three days clinical, um, uh, which is an all-day outpatient clinic, an all-day operating list, a ward round, admin, and and tidying up other things in those three days, as well as my on-calls get done then generally. Mm. Uh, I'm also the chair and director of medical innovation at Anglia Ruskin University, the new medical school there. I spent some of my time on uh, our medical school in Chelmsford um, with the students there, um, but also uh, in a leadership role. and spend some of my time in central London at Skipton House, which is the headquarters of NHS England, mm. um, and a series of meetings. Then those might be with external um, uh, companies. I see probably more than a thousand companies a year that beat their way to the door of the world's largest healthcare system to show them the latest, greatest things. So I get to see um, all the uh, the new toys, the new exciting things before they're in the shops. So it's like getting to see the uh, uh, um, uh, you know the uh, premiere of uh, the latest blockbuster film bef- a mm. few months before it's out. Yeah. Sometimes years before it, yeah. you'll get to see it, um, which is a great. So I get to almost horizon scan of what's coming on in in the future in early stage technology. But then there's lots of internal meetings. Mm. Oh, um, I'm the senior clinical advisor on healthcare innovation as well, not just at NHS England, but at the Department of Health, so across government. There are, it's it's the great, I mean, my job at NHS England is one of the greatest privileges of my life. You know, a clinician been put in a leadership role for a whole nation's healthcare innovation. Um, and for someone who loved tech and, 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 and innovation and invention and everything across the life sciences sector, mm. it's, it's like a dream. And so a, a whole range of thing, international yeah. thing, yeah. things in London. Still, uh, I still love, I did one the other day in theatre. Um, uh, uh, so I'm a urologist who does endourology. So I do laser prostates. That operation mm. is called OLEP and kidney stones largely. But I do some other things too, as well as general urology. And um, lots of my colleagues um, 
uh, 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 get a bit concerned. And I can understand that about the really huge prostates, the plus 500 yeah. grammers yeah. Um, that we have, because they are, you know, that's the size of a large orange, really. Yeah. And um, But once you know how to do it with a laser, it's still the most beautiful technical thing to do. So I still have a great love and passion for the actual, uh, the technical side of surgery. And, you know, and when you see that person in outpatients and they'd had their catheter for a year or two and suddenly they're free of it, they're free of the problems and the side effects that was causing and they can wee again and uh, not get up at night or something. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. kind of go, it's one of the reasons I get up out of bed. Yeah. Just is. So it's a whole, I, I wouldn't change any of it. I don't know, it's busy and it's mad and um, uh, I keep going, it can't carry on at this pace. Do you know, I recall one of my consultants when I was a houseman in uh, 1994, a long time ago, I did my house job, and the um, I was complaining about the hours. Now, then we did used to do long hours, unlike the yeah. protected ones, and you would do a, a 72-hour on-call weekend and various other things. And I'd done a long week, and I was exhausted, and the consultant looked at me and said, Tony, he said, you don't know how good you've got it. You wait till you become a consultant. It just gets busier and busier. And you know... He was right. I'm. I often, if I'm on call at a weekend now, I'll do over a hundred hours in a week, and um, it's exhausting, but it's exhilarating too. So I think we'll concentrate on your role as director of NHS innovation within within the National Health Service sure. England. What is innovation? I mean, I know it's a sort of a catch-all word. But what is innovation? And, and, and within that. What is your role as the director of innovation? Um, so uh, it's well. The, first of all, the role at um, uh, NHS England is um, uh, to try and get excellence taken up across the National Health Service. To try and so we've got the latest, greatest things happening everywhere to grow the life science economy in the UK. To advise, you know, the NHS government. Um, other bits of the public sector, companies, small, medium and large and foreign governments on healthcare mm -hmm. innovation and really try to make us a go-to place for innovation in healthcare. Um, innovation is in, uh, the NHS has defined it um, uh, a while ago. People come up with different definitions all the time, but essentially it's, uh, uh, lots of people think it's invention. It's not. It doesn't have to be a brand new invention. It's um, uh, invention plus adoption plus diffusion in my view because it's not an innovation unless it's been taken up across a system you could have the most amazing invention on the planet but if only one place is using it or no one's using it then it's not an innovation it doesn't change mm. anything and an innovation just has to be new in the nhs to that place yeah. so it could be be being used in other centers um, but you've not used it in in your centre yet, and then you take up what they've been doing. So that's an innovation for you. So I think it's something new that you take up and adopt across your system is how I would define it. Mm. I mean, obviously, since 1948, we were innovating ever since the sort of foundation of the NHS. Sure. How how do we get those ideas that you, you, you mentioned right to the front line of the National Health Service? That process... I can imagine it takes years and you are involved with that. But how do we get there from an idea to actually something that's useful to patients? Um, so it, there, there are countless examples of that. So I think it was nice. And, and the NHS got a great track record in the space. So I think it was 
I want to say 1949, but it might have been 1950, the first intraocular lens developed at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. Um, uh, of course, 1952, uh, 52, 53, uh, the DNA um, uh, discovery. Um, uh, of course, the NHS has now led the way with implementing that. We you know, decoded the whole genome in 2000, and now we're the first country as of last year that's rolled out whole genome screening for rare diseases and, and now cancer. Yeah. Um, that we're looking at so we're applying that um, but it's taken 50 years to develop the technology to allow that um, to happen in the genome mm. field mm. Um, the a total hip replacement was an uh, uh, NHS um, invention uh, in vitro fertilization the first test tube baby Louise Brown um, in the 90 I want to say 79 but I'm not sure of the, in the in the 70s mm. for sure and the um, so a number of things that have come forward that are notable and have been world leading and world changing. Um, but there are lots of innovations, of course, that um, take a bit longer to come through. You might look at things like the laryngeal mask invented by Archie Brain, who was a clinician in uh, to the west of London in Reading, um, and it became the most commonly used anaesthetic airway um, on the planet. That came out of an NHS clinician, and it took him, I think. From it was probably into widespread clinical practice from the initial idea about ten years, mm. but um, mm. you know because you've got to change practice and things. So, yeah. and there are some things, of course, that never get taken up, and some that get taken up rapidly. Mm. It, it's it's not easy. It's not straightforward. Um, there are many steps, um, and and there's no one uh, uh, simple way to make that all happen. Um, uh, but there are a number of um, things that have been put in place, a number of mechanisms that support this. So at NHS England, um, we uh, lead something called the Accelerated Access Collaborative, which it brings together a number of key stakeholders across the system, chaired by Lord Darcy from Imperial College London, and the chief executive is my boss, um, uh, Sam Roberts, who heads that up. And that looks at how can we really ex do exactly what you said, how do we get things taken up quicker mm, out yeah. of, across the system. And we've put a number of um, proposals in place, a number of support mechanisms to help make that happen, uh, ranging from we will help you test and trial it and evaluate it. And once you've got the evidence and it's proven, particularly nice level evidence, and it makes a significant difference to improving quality of care, improving outcomes, reducing um, cost so more cost efficient um, then um, it can go through our what we call our innovative technology payment system and we're now nationally commissioning some things and we've put several things through that now and um, we're showing that we can rapidly adopt across the whole system um, uh, some of the latest greatest technologies and make it available to patients mm -hmm. and I should say no country on the world in across the planet that I'm aware of has cracked this mm -hmm. um, there are um, uh, everyone's trying, everyone's uh, testing these things in areas, and we, we're quite happy to learn from others and, and see what's worked there and pick up um, uh, uh, you know, their insights and, and what works in their system and apply them to ours. We did that with something called the Academic Health Science Networks, 15 regional organizations across our country um, with that bring together academia, healthcare, industry funders to try and help us address the grand challenges we face and promote the uptake of innovation across the NHS. And that was modeled on um, something called CMIT, which is in Boston, which is essentially the Academic Health Science Network for Boston. Mm -hmm. And um, they brought together exactly the same thing, universities, hospital providers, industry and funders, 
and have been running that for several years, we looked across the world and said, that's a really great model. Mm. We can scale that nationally. That's exactly what we've done. So what makes the NHS a good place for innovation and research? I mean, it's obviously one sort of body, NHS England, but it's made up of many different foundation trusts. But it's massive. And to steer that, to, to, to create something from that large body of people, how easy is that? Oh, wow. So it is 1.4 million employees. We are, the lar- we are the largest employer of professionals on the planet, the fifth largest employer on the planet. And therefore, if there is a place to innovate at scale, the National Health Service is it, in my view. Some people view it like a super tanker that's hard to turn around. Mm. I say when you've got 1.4 million people, you know, and if you mine their intellectual capital for their best ideas and support them to help take those forward and address the challenges, it can be really amazing. So I think um, uh, I, I think our um, our size can sometimes be seen as a, a challenge. Yeah. I see it as our greatest opportunity and our most valuable asset that sits within that is our workforce. So uh, do you have any specific examples of startups? I, I mentioned, um, sorry, I saw something the other day on the ward, actually. I'm a medical student in, in Norfolk, so I'm on placement at the James Paget Hospital. Yep. And I saw a droplet, the cups, being oh, used yeah. uh, by patients that speak speak to patients to, to yep. help them to drink, you know, to increase yep. that aura intake, yep. um, which I thought was a fantastic idea. Um a bit creepy at first, but I think you know if you if you if you are sat on there and you, you forget to drink, it's a really clever way of um, doing it. But any other examples that sort of you've been involved with that you think that have sort of reached the front line of the NHS? So I have been involved with Droplet, and the reason oh you have oh, in, your, <laughs> of you have. in your hospital is uh, is partly because of that. So I encouraged them to apply to something called the National Innovation Accelerator, which they did, and they were successful in getting on it. And it's a great little cup with a base, as you say that can speak to you but what happens is it's either the nurse or one of your clinical carers but more yeah. often it's a member of your family severe dehydration in the elderly is a major cause for emission morbidities falls pneumonias infections all yeah. those things yeah. um, and the people just aren't drinking enough mm. and if you've got um, cognitive impairment you're going to forget to drink so a little beaker full of water that's by the side of you that just flashes um every 10 minutes or so and if you don't take a drink it will carry on flashing it grabs your attention yeah. because we know that attention mechanisms are set in the brain stem and the brain stem generally isn't affected by the dementia process so we've gone what i love about what they've done is they've gone back to an attention grabbing mechanism which is mm-hmm. often intact yeah. um patients can see that as a glass of water and go oh i'll have a drink and then what's really good is if you don't pick it up you could have your son or your daughter or your husband or wife whoever it is come on and say mum have some more water to drink and they look around and go oh okay I'll, yeah, uh, and it, yeah. And it can work I, really I really thought well. it was fantastic I know I saw so like but there are lots of things things that are directly applicable to patients things that so one of the things I really like is uh is on our entrepreneur program so I run the clinical entrepreneur program at NHS England mm-hmm. I'm the clinical lead for that we've got a lot of people that help us run it um and the um they uh, uh, one of the companies on there is called Timpana Health, and they've essentially um, created uh, what I think is the leading example on the planet of a smartphone otoscope. So mm. turning your smartphone into something you can look in your ear with. Um, uh, but he's done uh, something really quite clever with it. There's no special optics. 
It's um, software that allows you, uh, you clip your phone into a stand, the ear speculum goes in your ear as normal, mm. and it just enhances the image that you can see down the ear speculum. And what that allows you to do, most importantly, is remove earwax and do essentially microsuction of your ear, but without an expensive operating microscope, which is what normally is uh, required. Um, and now this is um, being rolled out to every boot store in the country. So whenever you go and right. have a hearing test of boots, that's being done. They've got to deal with the Walgreens Alliance because boots are allied with them. Um, and so it's going to be across the United States soon. And they're looking at other opportunities for global expansion. And this came out of someone who was an ENT surgeon, now a GP trainee in northwest London, um, and has had a really fantastic idea over something very simple. Lots of other companies were focusing on complex eardrum diagnostics. And he said, well, no, half a billion people have problems with earwax on the planet. Yeah. Why don't we just create a system that allows us to remove that simply, safely, instead of a consultant surgeon having to do it, let's have a healthcare assistant when you go in for your hearing test having that done. So a, a brilliant, hmm. simple idea. I mean, hearing loss, and we're, earwax is the commonest treatable cause of hearing loss. It's responsible for loneliness, um, falls, um, depression, hmm. worsening of dementia. So just this simple thing that you clip on your phone could make such a difference to yeah. patients and professionals. And I think it's a great success story that's come out of the National Health Service. And the beauty is the National Health Service own a small stake in this. So mm. as it becomes globally successful, um, uh, the NHS itself will benefit from that success. And that's exactly how it should be, in my view. Do you have any advice... For, for students and junior doctors who want to get involved with these things, they might have an idea or, or uh, something that they're thinking about or even something they've developed further, but are worried about, I think like you said, worried about sort of dropping out of clinical time, dropping out of their training programs or things sure. like that. What, what sort of advice do you have for them? So join the Clinical Entrepreneur Programme. Um, so uh, four years ago, we, um, we established this programme for exactly that reason, that yeah. um, doctors have, uh, and nurses and others have committed to a, a clinical life and career and very often don't want to give that up. And that's why we founded the program, because we said, well, actually, if you've got a great idea and maybe it's a startup, maybe you could raise some money, why should you have to quit the NHS? Why don't we create a training program that allows you to continue with your dual passions of healthcare and entrepreneurialism? So the program now in its fourth year, 507 frontline clinicians on the program. How can we help you um, uh, get less than full-time training if you want that? could be three or six months out. could just be one or two days a week um, to help with your startup but keep you in the NHS. Get You get a commercial coach and mentor, um, advanced internship opportunities in different companies, um, uh, a whole load of education and networking events, connections to customers and funding. And what we found with this sort of smorgasbord approach is people can pick and mix what's right for them, what support they need, mm -hmm. depending on the stage of their startup. Um, and it, it works really well. In our first three years, we had 175 startups. They raised £164 million between them. Yeah, um, they created well over 1,000 jobs, about 17 million patients and professionals impacted, and 106, I think it was, junior doctors largely junior doctors who quit the NHS or who were about to quit came back or stayed as a result of the program. Mm -hmm. So you could do both things. You could continue as a clinician and do your startup or take your innovation or idea forward. And it's become the world's largest entrepreneurial training program in healthcare. 
and people thought the National Health Service couldn't do it. But, you know, our size um, and uh, that sort of unified um, uh, uh, structure that we have has, mm. has allowed us to do what no one else has been able to do before. And of course, this program is helping other people. Yeah, exactly. As you said, uh, balance that clinical time and, 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 and more opportunities that the NHS can bring. I mean, you, you obviously didn't have the NHS program that you, you're setting up. How Correct. did you get where you are now? I mean, you, you're an innovator yourself. Is this always something that's been sort of in your bones or, or is this something you've just, I don't know, developed over time? So I am, I've done um, uh, four startups myself, raised about five million in private sector funds for those and exited. And I did that all alongside my surgical training. You're right. Um, and um, but it was hard and I had to fight the system my whole way. And if you could see the scars on my back, um, you would see what a journey it's been. Um, but the beauty of um, uh, the offer that Sir Bruce Keogh made me when he was medical director was he said, you know, Tony, we want you to come to the centre and shift it in the direction you're going in. Mm. Um, so having fought the system my whole life, suddenly I was invited to come you to are the, the system. system. Yeah. No, I don't know about that. I, <laughs> I think, um, I think um, I've been invited to, to, to and given the privilege of coming to the centre to try and say, we've tried so many things before um, and, and lots of it has helped, but actually we need to do more. We need to do things in a different and a new way and actually, we haven't tried entrepreneurialism. We haven't tried. And one of the beautiful things about entrepreneurialism, it allows you to fail. Now, in healthcare, failure is a very serious thing. We want to uh, keep that to a minimum. But in, if we look at evolution, if we look at um, uh, the commercial world and startups, um, actually, failure is an important thing. Evolution runs thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of experiments most of them fail, but occasionally you get a little mutation that makes a real difference and things evolve and grow on. So if we're not testing and trialing things properly and appropriately with the acceptance that maybe sometimes they might fail, then we're not going to be allowing the latest, greatest things to come forward um, and finding out what they are um, because we haven't got a system and a structure that allows us to test trial in, and in a safe, do that in a safe and appropriate way, but also a safe and appropriate way to allow failure and say, you know, this isn't working. We need to stop this now and go and try something else. And that's fine. And I think that's what entrepreneurialism does. It gives you permission to fail in a safe and appropriate manner. And I think that's a really helpful thing in healthcare. Yeah. And we need a bit more of it. I'm going to play devil's advocate now because... I suppose these are great ideas and, and people will think, wow, you know, these cups, droplet, that can really help patients on the front line. But to what extent do these ideas actually help patients? I mean, for example, I, I did a, a, a degree in genetics last year and our advancements in genetic technology, our SNPs uh, that we're discovering, uh, the genes related to conditions are useful uh, for Correct. research, but... but are they affecting patients on the front line? If we take technology as another example, yeah. fine. All these things that we're talking about, the otoscope, um, sound fantastic. But actually, on the front line, the technology that junior doctors are using is a bit rubbish. How do we overcome this? You know? I almost don't agree with anything you've just said. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Um, so genetics is of no use. No, 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 that's not true at all. 
rare diseases, the 100,000 Genome Project, an investment from our government, first country to screen 100,000 whole genomes. Um, and what has that led us to discover? It's made a massive difference. Look at the Genomics England website. Look at the clinical case examples they have got on there of children very often who were undiagnosed. We didn't know what was going on with them. And whole genome sequencing has allowed a range of diagnoses to be made and then new treatments started. And people who've been cured as a result of a treatment, that a condition that wasn't even expected. So in rare diseases, um, in people with an, a condition, but we didn't know what the diagnosis was, um, I, uh, whole um, genome screening has had a real benefit. Looking at cancer too, genotyping your cancer. So you know, is it going to be sensitive to a particular form of treatment or not? And we're now we're the first country in the world to roll that out. So I can't accept the premise that it makes no difference. Has it been overhyped? Of course. Lots of things are overhyped, aren't they, for all sorts of reasons. You know, there was so much promise, and it's going to make a difference tomorrow in 2000 when we first sequenced the whole um, human genome. Mm. And here we are 19 years later. And as you say, it's not lived up to the initial hype of what there was. So I, I, I do accept that. But it doesn't mean there aren't some really massive advances and the potential benefits of personalized medicine. The cost of, you know, we could do, I think, um, uh, the cost of genome screening in 2000 when it was first done, you could have done 20 whole genome screens with the whole NHS budget at that point. And now it's dropped. It's way less than a thousand dollars now, and and falling even more. Um, and eventually the costs are going to, you know, it'll be the same cost as having a scan done for something. Yeah. Uh, the question is, is what do you do with that data, and how do you interpret it and take it forward? So I think there's a whole um, uh, uh, lots of promise, a whole range of potential opportunities for the future. I think it's many of it has been overhyped, often not by the scientists, often by other. Right. Um, uh, uh, groups and things, um, and uh, but it's got some very specific um, uh, uh, benefits in that space. As for technology, oh well, of course, lots of hype in that too. Yes, is there clunky old stuff around? But and you might say, oh, junior doctors don't like technology. They're all carrying it around in their pockets. Well, no, they're on true. their um, uh, 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 hopefully secure messaging platforms like Forward, which the Forward app, which is on the uh, NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Program, allowing you to send secure and appropriate clinical messaging between um, uh, colleagues. Uh, there are also uh, picture messaging options you can have within things like that to allow you to uh, get appropriate diagnoses and, and referrals shared. So I think um, uh, there are some things that have been um, done and taken forward that we could have done better, sure, and, and that's always the case. There are some really exciting things, um, well, you know, from wearable sensors to point of care diagnostics to new, um, uh, you know, connected devices, um, uh, condition specific apps and platforms. You know, you look at my COPD, which was the first ever endorsed NHS um, app, and we've nationally uh, commissioned that. Um, and um, I think I, I'd have to check the data. But it's it's tens of thousands, it may be even over 100,000 licenses now that have been um, uh, sold for that in the National Health Service. And we've got patients with COPD 
who are trained, educated, monitored on that. And it's helping to prevent admission and reduce the number of times you come into hospital with an exacerbation of COPD. So we can utilize technology in certain ways. There's no one size fits all Mm. process. And I think you don't just have to personalize medicine. You have to personalize the technology to the individual. Not everyone's going to want to use their smartphone or their tablet or their laptop. And um, I think uh, we have to make sure you're always going to have that human interface, that ability to go see some someone and connect with them. But a really nice example from Australia um, that they've done in the last two years, stunning. I think Tim Kelsey, who heads up their digital health facility for the government there, has been responsible for that. They bought in an electronic healthcare record that's controlled by the patient. So the patient has um, their PIN number. Um, that's only known yeah, to them and they go and see a doctor and the doctor says to them um, uh, uh, very nice to you may I may I access yeah. your healthcare record it completely so flips what we do with I, data I and health records now the patient controls it the patient yeah. types in their pin number the doctor is allowed to use the electronic record while um, uh, the patient is there and has given them access um, and is in complete control of it and they thought they were ambitious and they thought, um, you know, uh, 89% of people would use it and probably 11% of people in Australia wouldn't touch it. And in fact, the data is it's 91% of people have embraced this across the system within two years and are regularly using it. And it's just 9% of the population who say, it's not right for me. I don't want to use that. I'm going to continue using the traditional methods. But that is a stunning uptake of new technology and how fantastic to put the electronic record in the hands of patients. I think that's one of the leading examples on the planet of the rapid uptake of technology for patient benefit. Imagine, you know, don't have to ask for your test results. They're there. You can access and see them. I think it's fantastic. Professor Tony Young, your passion and enthusiasm for innovation and the NHS is contagious. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Great to speak to you. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to hear more from us, please consider subscribing through your podcast provider. You can also follow Geek Medics on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you with suggestions on who you would like to hear from next. There will be a short hiatus of the podcast while I'll concentrate on more pressing issues like my final exams in March. Wish me luck. But rest assured, I have some interesting guests already lined up for April onwards. As ever, thank you to the producers of the podcast, Alice Appleton and Dr. Lewis Potter.